You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning and welcome to the Dean's Class. From time to time, uh, I invite people to take the lectern and teach the Dean's Class, whether because they have a particular field of expertise or a perspective that I would like to share with you, the congregation, uh, or because I simply need a break. Well, uh, this morning, uh, both of those reasons are prevailing. And so it is my uh, great uh, privilege to introduce to you uh, our Dean's Class leader this morning, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was born in 1899 and lived into the 1980s, training first as a medical doctor, but then for almost 30 years serving as the pastor of Westminster Chapel in central London. Martin Lloyd-Jones was known for his preaching, and many of you have read his books, things like uh, Spiritual uh, Depression, uh, as well as many others. His commentary on Romans and Ephesians and his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount uh, have been uh, bestsellers for decades and decades. And you may ask, uh, well, what's a dead man doing uh, here this morning? It's a first for me to invite a dead person to take the lectern, but of course the book of Hebrews tells us, the dead yet speaketh. And as we embark on Ephesians chapter 4, the nature of the church is what we're going to be talking about, and we're going to spend several weeks on it. And as I was preparing for this week, I realized that Martin Lloyd-Jones was saying it a whole lot better than I ever could. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones this morning is with us to give us an introduction to the doctrine of the church. And so will you bow your heads in prayer with me as we welcome Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones to the Advent this morning. Oh, Lord, we do thank you for the saints, saints who have gone on before us, whose shoulders we stand upon, and, Lord, that your truth endures from generation to generation. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands fast forever. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us even now through the words of Dr. Lloyd-Jones, and, Lord, that uh, we thank you for the gift he is for our church and for the church And Lord, we also pray that uh, as we hear these words, that they might be afresh to us today, even as you are speaking to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope this serves as a wonderful introduction to you, to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, speaking today on the doctrine of the Church of God. In our consideration of the biblical doctrines, we come this evening to a new section. New simply in the sense that uh, we recognize uh, certain divisions uh, for the sake of convenience of thought, but obviously new in no other sense. Also, I would like to indicate at this point the uh, marvelous way in which each one of these doctrines leads to the next quite inevitably. Truth is one, God's purpose is a whole. So that as you finish dealing with one doctrine, you are of necessity introducing the next. Now last Friday night, you remember, we were considering together the teaching of the Bible concerning the spiritual gifts. And in doing that, we saw that these various gifts were given to the church. 
We considered how God gives apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers with the necessary gifts. And various other gifts we saw uh, were given to those, uh, to, to, to Christian people, special gifts, temporary gifts to those early Christians, uh, other gifts which are more permanent and given to all Christians at all times. But in all these cases, uh, we were observing that the gifts were given, in a sense, to the church uh, and to those who are members of the church. And in that way, we come, I say, by this kind of inevitable logic and by the force of truth itself uh, to a consideration of the biblical doctrine of the nature of the church, the doctrine of the church. Now, this uh, doctrine is very often entirely omitted in books that deal with biblical doctrines. I find it very difficult to discover why, but that is undoubtedly the case. And yet it seems to me that this is uh, something which is uh, most uh, regrettable. Because if we really are concerned to deal with the doctrines that appear in the Bible itself, well then we must of necessity deal with the doctrine of the church. Every single New Testament epistle was written to a church. And their teaching is so much about the church. So it isn't enough that we should consider the doctrines of the Bible that deal with our more personal and individualistic needs and experiences. All this space would not be devoted to truths concerning the church in the New Testament unless this were something that really is vital and essential. So the mere character of the scripture itself compels us to deal with this doctrine of the church. Then another reason for dealing with it surely is this. Think of uh, the great prominence that this doctrine of the church has had in the history of the church herself. Take the history of this our own country without going any further. The standing out in the history of the life of, the, of this nation and of the people of the British Isles, very prominently is this whole question of the church and the nature of the church. The Protestant Reformation is one of those great turning points which everybody knows something about. The things that happened in the 17th century. The civil war and certain aspects of the civil war. Now, you can't even look at those things from the secular standpoint without seeing uh, that this doctrine of the church is rather important. Our fathers, going back to those centuries, regarded this doctrine as of such vital importance that they were prepared to undergo very great hardships and to suffer the loss of almost all things because of their concern about this doctrine of the nature of the church. To them it was not uh, uh, something that didn't matter very much, that you could regard it as a matter of indifference. Whatever persecution they might have to endure, even at the risk of their lives, many of them formed their conventicles, as you know, and insisted upon meeting together. So that to them, obviously, the doctrine of the church was a very important doctrine. And uh, I suggest to you that if we had no other reason for considering it, therefore, 
our very respect for the names and for the greatness of our distant forefathers should compel us to do it. Men don't suffer like that for truth and for a cause if it is an indifferent matter. And then, of course, there's another reason today which uh, drives us uh, to consider this question. And that is uh, the great prominence that is being given at the present time uh, to this whole question of the Christian Church in connection with what goes by the name of the ecumenical movement. Now, the religious paper, newspapers uh, really seem to be devoting themselves almost exclusively to this. I don't know to what extent you follow these papers, but I don't care what denomination they belong to, they're all full of it. It was for months this year up to Evanston, and now it's after Evanston what? And the post-Evanston outlook and so on. Well, a few years ago it was all about Amsterdam, and the, the whole emphasis, you see, is upon the church. It is being said by the... Uh, exponents of this particular ecumenical doctrine that the particular function of the church in the 20th century is to call attention to the nature of the church. So if we want to be able to enter into discussion with such people and to be able to take an intelligent interest in these discussions, it behoves us to know something about the New Testament doctrine of the church. Very well. You see, there are abundant reasons why we ought to look at it together. But I want to go further. I have a reason which to me is far more important than all those put together in a sense. And it's this. That I'm not at all sure, but that it is our failure as evangelical people particularly, during the last 60 to 70 years, to take the biblical teaching concerning the nature of the church seriously that accounts for most of the problems that we are confronting at the present time. I mean by that, that uh, for some reason or another, our immediate fathers and grandfathers felt that it was sufficient to form movements and didn't think in terms of the church with the result that the evangelical witness is diluted amongst the great denominations and Christian people only meet together in movements instead of in churches, I mean evangelical Christians. So that I think that from that standpoint, this is a highly important subject. If we have a real deep concern about the evangelical message and its vital importance in the world today, well, then I say we are compelled to consider the biblical teaching concerning the nature of the church. Very well. Let's try to approach it like this. Uh, let me also at this point make my uh, usual introductory remark. It is a highly controversial subject. Uh, they've all been practically, haven't they? Almost every doctrine we touch, I have to say that about it. Well... The history alone with, to which I've been referring uh, assures us that this is, of all of them, perhaps the most highly controversial. And yet I say again, it's sheer cowardice to avoid dealing with a subject simply because it's controversial. Our business is, whatever our upbringing, whatever our background, whatever our prejudices, to come and endeavor at any rate 
to consider with as open a mind as we can what the scriptures really have to tell us. Let us all try to do that praying that God will deliver us from our prejudices which we all tend to suffer from. Now let us come therefore to certain preliminary words of definition. The first thing it seems to me we've got to try to deal with is this. What is the relationship of the church to the kingdom of God? You see, you get these two teachings in the scriptures. The teaching about the kingdom of God, then the, king, the teaching about the church. And there is often a great deal of confusion between the two. This is very largely the case, of course, because the Roman Catholic Church identifies them. In Roman Catholic teaching, the church is the kingdom of God. And she is absolutely consistent in the way in which she works that out. She claims, therefore, a right to rule and to dominate the whole of life in every respect. And do you remember how in the Middle Ages the Roman Church used to rule kings and lords and princes and countries and powers? She claimed that because she is the kingdom of God and she was supreme. And that idea somehow has tended to persist. So we must be clear about uh, the relationship of the church and the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is best defined, surely, as this, as the rule of God. The kingdom of God is present wherever God is reigning and ruling. That was why our Lord was able to say, you remember when he was here in the flesh, that because of his activity and his works, he said, the kingdom of God is amongst you and has come upon you. If I, he said, by the finger of God do these things, then the kingdom of God is come amongst you and upon you. He was ruling at that point. So that you see, if you regard the kingdom of God as the rule and the reign of God, you can say that it was here when our Lord was here in person. It is present now wherever the Lord Jesus Christ is acknowledged as Lord. But it is to come with a greater fullness, when everybody and everything will have to acknowledge his lordship. So that in that sense you can say that the kingdom has come, the kingdom is coming, and the, king, the kingdom is amongst us, and the kingdom is yet to come. Well now then, what is the relationship of the church to that? Well surely it is this. The church is an expression of the kingdom. It isn't the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a wider and a bigger concept than the church. In the church, where the church is truly the church, the Lordship of Christ is acknowledged and recognized and he reigns there. So the kingdom is there at that point. Well, that is the church. The church is a part of the kingdom, but it's only a part of it. His kingdom is much wider than that. He rules in places where he's not acknowledged. Outside the church even. Because all things are in his hand and history is in his hands. So the church we must regard as an expression of the kingdom. But it is not to be equated with the kingdom. It is not coextensive with the kingdom. Very well, let's leave that at that. It's a very great subject which we ought really to go into in greater detail, but I'm simply concerned with a number of definitions this evening. Now then let us come to some of the terms that are used. The term, as you're familiar with it, uh, which is translated here, church, is the term ecclesia. 
And the ecclesia means the called out. Ecclesia means those who are called out. Not of necessity called out of the world, but it means people who are called out of society for some particular function or purpose. They're called together, if you like. Or indeed, you can translate it by the word assembly. Now, the word, you see, is not confined in the scriptures to a spiritual assembly. If you read the account of that uh, extraordinary meeting that took place in the city of Ephesus, you'll find it in the 19th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, a great meeting took place. It almost became a riot, and the town clerk referred to it as an assembly, an ecclesia. All he meant by that was that a number of people had come together. And that is the basic meaning of this term ecclesia. In the same way, if you read the address of the martyr Stephen in the seventh chapter of Acts, you will find that in verse 38, he refers to Moses being with the church that was in the wilderness. So the children of Israel in the Old Testament were a church. They were the ecclesia. That is the church in the Old Testament. This gathering, this assembly of God's people. The term church is used with respect to that. So that that is its basic and fundamental meaning. Now the word which, our word church, or the word they use in Scotland, the kirk, and all the uh, cognate uh, similar uh, terms and names, they carry a slightly different meaning. The meaning there is that we belong to the Lord. The curious, the Lord, the Kaiser, the Caesar, the Lord. That's where our word church comes from. And it's important that we should remember that because you must put these two meanings together. The church rarely consists of those people who belong to the Lord who are gathered together. That is a kind of basic uh, meaning to the terms which are used for church in the New Testament scriptures. But let us go a step further. Let us go on to consider certain statements which are made about the church or with respect to the church in the scriptures. And these are really important. You will find that the terms applied to the church are generally used with regard to a local gathering. Now the distinction I'm making at this point is this. It's the difference between the church thought of as a general idea and the church thought of as a local and particular idea. Now the term that is almost invariably used, I'll give you the exceptions in a moment, but the terms that are practically always used in the scripture carry this local meaning. Now let me give you some illustrations of that. Paul in the 16th chapter of the epistle to the Romans, in sending his greetings to Aquila and Priscilla, makes a reference to the church that meets in their house. Now there's a perfect example of it. A number of these Christians met together in the house of Aquila and Priscilla and the Apostle Paul doesn't hesitate to call that a church. You see, it's a local gathering. 
He isn't thinking of the church in terms of this modern ecumenical idea, according to which the church is the great thing, not the local gatherings. In the scriptures, I'm saying, the meaning is almost invariably the local gathering, the church that is in their house. And then, you see, he addresses his epistles to the church of God which is in Corinth. He writes, for instance, in the Galatian epistle, uh, to the churches of Galatia. He doesn't write to the church of Galatia. He writes to the churches of Galatia. Obviously, he wasn't thinking of one unit which was divided into local numbers. He was thinking of the local units. He doesn't talk about the church of Galatia, which has a branch here, there, and there. No, no, he thinks of the churches, a number of these units in Galatia. A most significant point, and a most important point. Now, if you go through your scriptures, you will find, I say, that that is uh, speaking very uh, generally the universal apostolic way of handling this subject. But... We do have to notice that there are some two or three instances where the uh, word church is used rather than churches. Now, one of them is rather interesting. It's to be found in the ninth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles and in the 31st verse. Now, there is a difference here between the authorized and the revised version. Here in my authorized, I read this. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. The plural. But there in the revised version in front of you, you've got it in the singular. The church. And we, 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 it, it's all in the singular. It's about the church and it's not were edified, but being edified. Now that is an interesting point. It has to be conceded that the revised version is undoubtedly the better translation. And it's a question again of which particular version uh, you use, which ancient document you regard as the most important. So we grant that it should read the church. Yes, but even then you see, we've got to remember this, that the reference is almost certainly to the members of the church at Jerusalem who had been scattered abroad as the result of the persecution. So even there, probably, it's not referring to this idea of the church as distinct from the churches, but was thinking of the one church scattered abroad in various places and was at peace. However, it isn't uh, as vital a point as all that. And again, you see, in 1 Corinthians 12:28 we read this, And God uh, hath uh, set some in the church... First apostles, secondarily prophets. He doesn't say he set them in the churches. He says he has set them in the church. So that in those instances, we have the use of the church in the singular, not in the plural. And then there is one other way in which the term is used. In certain passages, like those great passages in the epistle to the Ephesians, the church is obviously being thought of by the apostle as including not only those who are on earth but also those who are in heaven. At the end of the first chapter he puts it like this, and has put all things under his feet 
and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And you'll find that he does it in the same way in the third chapter, in the tenth verse, to the intent, he says, that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And the same again in the fifth chapter. Now then, so far we've seen this, that generally speaking, the term is used in the plural, the writers are obviously thinking of individual churches, but in these few instances which I've just given to you, there is a larger and a bigger conception and the term the church is used as distinct from the churches. Then the next thing I think to call attention to is the various pictures or illustrations which are used in order to teach the doctrine concerning the church. And there are quite a number and very interesting ones. The first is the analogy of a body. The church is the body of Christ, we are told. And you will find that in several of the New Testament epistles. The classical example, of course, is the first epistle to the Corinthians, the 12th chapter. The church as the body of Christ. You've got it in the 12th of Romans, you've got it in the 4th of Ephesians, and in many other places. Then another idea is the church as a temple or as a building. The apostle compares himself to a wise master builder. He talks about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So he thinks of it there as a building that is being erected and going up. Then you will find that he sometimes refers to the church as the bride of Christ. That's in the fifth of Ephesians, for instance. And there are other examples of that in the book of Revelation. And another conception is that of an empire. In the second chapter of Ephesians, he talks about our being fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Uh, obviously, an analogy that came very readily to the mind of the apostle. He was probably a prisoner in Rome at the time he wrote that epistle and there he was thinking of this great Roman Empire and he felt that there was something analogous to that about the church. All these parts scattered abroad and yet there was a sort of central unity. Well now then, take all these things together and what is our conclusion? Well we can put it like this. Clearly the church is something spiritual and invisible. That is the church, as it were. Now that isn't something visible, that's something invisible. All these instances I've given you of the church used in the singular are suggesting something which has reality as a spiritual entity, but it can't be seen. Uh, but at the same time, the church is also visible, and can be seen externally and can be described as existing in Corinth or in Rome or in some other particular place. Now it's very important that we should bear those two things in our mind, that the church is invisible but yet manifests itself visibly. This invisible something has local manifestations. Now a good analogy here of course is the soul. You can't see a man's soul. 
But you know that a man has got a soul and he expresses and manifests the fact that he's got a soul through his body and through his behavior and his life. The invisible manifesting itself through the visible. And that is obviously true of the Christian church. Apart from local churches, there is such a thing as the church. The body of Christ is an entity. It's a, it's a real and a living thing. And of course, it's very important that we should be drawing these distinctions. Because in the light of what I've been saying, uh, I can go on to say this. You cannot be a Christian without being a member of the church, spiritual and invisible. It's impossible. All Christians are members of the body of Christ. I mean this invisible spiritual church. But you can be a member of it with, without of necessity being a member of a visible part of the church. You should be, but you can be one without the other. On the other hand, it is possible to be a member of the visible, external manifestation of the church and not to be a member of the invisible spiritual church. So that, you see, these distinctions become rather important. And they're both to be found in the scripture. The church which is his body, the church at Corinth, the church at Rome, these visible local manifestations, the churches of Galatia. Or if you like another term, you can speak as has been done throughout the centuries of the church militant and the church triumphant. The church on earth is fighting for her life, for her doctrine, for everything. The church that is beyond the veil is there rejoicing and triumphant. Take, for instance, the great way in which that is put in the 12th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews. Well, then I would sum all this up by putting it like this. that the general picture in the New Testament of what is meant by the church is a local gathering of saints where the presence and the lordship of Christ is recognized. That's the usual meaning given in the scriptures to this term church. But let us always remember, I say, that over and above that all in those local manifestations of the church who are truly born again and spiritual people are also members of this unseen spiritual church, this true body of Christ. Very well. There, it seems to me, is something which is of very great importance if we are to understand the present discussion about the church in particular. So I come on to that next question, the question of the unity of the church. And this is the great topic of today. Now, here, surely, there are certain things which can be said without any fear of contradiction if we are to be guided by uh, the scriptural teaching, then we've got to agree at once that the unity that the scripture is interested in, in in the church is spiritual unity. That was why I read that 17th chapter of the gospel according to St. John at the beginning. Oh, how often is this chapter misquoted today. People just tear a phrase right out of its context that they might be one, they say. 
and leave it at that and say that division in the church is the greatest sin of all and so on. Well, we are of course all agreed that division is regrettable. Schism is certainly sin. Yes, but you see, when that is interpreted as meaning that anybody who calls himself a Christian in any shape or form is one with whom we should be in absolute unity in every respect, it becomes an actual contradiction of what the 17th of John teaches. What I mean is this. The 17th of John surely makes it quite plain and clear as to the character of this unity. Our Lord's terms are these. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. That's all spiritual. It's the relationship between the Father and the Son and those who are in Christ and in the Father and the Son. And he's already told us certain things about these people. He says, I have given unto them the words that thou gavest me and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee and have believed that thou didst send me. So these words are only applicable to men who believe that particular doctrine. And if a man tells me that he's a Christian but says Jesus was only a man, I say I'm, I have no unity with him. I don't belong to him. He may call himself a Christian, but if he hasn't believed and accepted this, there is no basis of unity. It's spiritual unity. Then Paul puts it, you remember, in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, in the third verse, he talks about the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That great 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians we were looking at last week, it makes the same point. If the analogy of the body is at all right, there must be an essential organic spiritual unity. If the parts can't work harmoniously, if they don't belong to one another, if they haven't got the same life in them, if the same blood isn't flowing through them, then you see, he says that through one spirit we have access by one spirit, unto the Father. So that the first thing to emphasize is the spirit. It's a spiritual unity. It isn't an organizational unity. It isn't a mere amalgamation of a number of organizations. It isn't a coalition of people who disagree and who differ for the sake of some common purpose. That isn't what I find in the scriptures. But it's something mystical, it's something spiritual, it's something vital, it's a community of life. It isn't a mere paper agreement or an organizational amalgamation. But the second thing is equally clear in the scripture. And that is that the basis of unity must be doctrine, it must be doctrinal. Now I've shown you that already in this 17th chapter of John. He says, Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Now those words mean the words about his being the only begotten Son of God. They are words about the incarnation, about the word being made flesh. They are words in which he claims before Abraham was I am. They are words, in other, in other words, that teach his 
miraculous coming into the world, the virgin birth. They, they, they refer to his miracles because he, he refers them himself to his miracles, the supernatural, the purpose of his death, giving his life a ransom for many, and so on. Those are the words that he spoke about the person of the Holy Spirit, and so on. And yet, you see, we are asked today to enter into some great unity with people who deny his deity, his unique deity, who don't believe that he's the only begotten Son of God, who don't believe the virgin birth, who don't believe he ever worked a miracle. They say miracles are impossible and that that's folklore. They don't believe in the substitutionary atonement. They don't believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. I say that to talk about unity with such people is a denial of the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. They pick out this one statement about that they may be one and forget all this rich doctrinal teaching that has preceded it. But that's not the only example of this. Do you remember what you read in Acts 2.42? In the very second chapter of Acts, immediately after the day of Pentecost, we are told, and they all continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, teaching, and fellowship, and breaking of bread and prayer. Scripture, my friends, is verbally inspired. Words count, and the place and the position of words in a verse are of tremendous importance. You notice that we are not told that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' fellowship and doctrine and breaking of bread and prayer. No, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. In other words, before you can have fellowship, there must be community of doctrine. Fellowship is based upon the same faith, the same truth, the same understanding. If you mean one thing by Christ and the other man means another, can you have real fellowship with him? How can you both go through the same person to God if, me, if one thinks he's only a man and the other says, no, no, he's the eternal substance made flesh? There must be community of belief. You're unhappy about the other man and you're doubtful as to what he means by his terms otherwise. The apostles' doctrine, then fellowship. But today, you see, fellowship is put first. They say, let's all get together. We can then decide about these matters of belief. But you can't have fellowship apart from this unity of doctrine. Indeed, there is even a stronger statement than this. The second epistle, the second epistle of John, in the tenth verse, you read these words. Now, the second epistle of John, remember, not the first epistle, second chapter, but the second epistle. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. That's John the Apostle of Love. He attaches that significance to doctrine and to truth. He says you mustn't receive the man into your house. If you do, you're encouraging him. If you give him a meal and send him on his journey, you're encouraging his false doctrine. Don't do it, says John. And if you read the first epistle of John, you'll find that all along he's concerned about the same thing. There were certain people, he says, who've gone out from amongst us. These antichrists and their followers, they were amongst us, but they've gone out. Evidently they were not of us, says John. And it's on a point of doctrine, remember. No, no, doctrine is essential. 
and vital to true fellowship. So that when you're discussing the question of the unity of the church, you must always put in the foremost position the spiritual character and the doctrinal character of the unity. May I put it in a phrase like this? It's never a very difficult thing to get a coalition of people who believe nothing in particular. But that, my dear friends, is not unity. Unity is something positive. It isn't people coming together because nobody cares very much what you say or what you believe. Unity is a life, it's a power, it's an enthusiasm, it's people welded together because they hold this in common. And above everywhere else that is true in the church of God. I see my time is going and I hadn't intended to dilate as I've done on some of these points, but after all how vital they are. And if you go back through the long history of the church, you'll find that the church has always counted most and has been greatly used of God when you've had perhaps even a handful of people who were agreed in spirit and in doctrine. God could take hold of them and use them and do mighty things through them. Whereas when you had but one church in the whole of Western Europe, well, what did she lead to? The Dark Ages. And yet it seems to me that this great lesson of history is being entirely forgotten and utterly ignored at this present time. I say these things not because I'm animated by any controversial spirit, but because I have a zeal for the truth as I find it in the scriptures and regard it as tragic to note the way in which scripture is being twisted and perverted in the interests of a unity which is not a unity. Let me say one last word this evening. What is the relationship of the church to the state? Here again you see a highly controversial subject. The Roman Catholic idea was that the church is the state and is everything else. That the church controls everything. And as I reminded you at the beginning, the church did that. At the extreme opposite to that is the so-called Erastian view a view first propounded by a man called Erastus, whom I regret to say was a medical man. <laughs> I feel I must on some occasion give you uh, the story and the history of the unfortunate interventions of medical men in the doctrinal history of the church. <laughs> Erastus, unfortunately, was the man who started this pernicious doctrine and idea that the church is a branch of the state. Now that is, of course, the view in this country with regard to the Church of England. The Church of England is Erastian, and most of the Lutheran churches take the same view. The, church, the Lutheran Church in Germany was Erastian, and I think a very good case can be made out for saying that perhaps we would never have heard of the man called Hitler were it not for the Erastianism of the Lutheran Church in Germany. However, that's a debatable point. Now, there is the exact opposite of the Roman Catholic view, that the Church is a kind of department of state, and it's ruled and governed by the state, so that the head of the state appoints bishops and various other dignitaries and functionaries in the Church and rarely does control 
You remember, for instance, in 1928, many of you, the great controversy in the House of Commons over the new proposed prayer book. The church had decided to have this, but the Parliament was able to turn it down. You may say, well, a very good thing that, it, that the Parliament had that authority. From one standpoint, yes, but from another standpoint, no. Because that is a weapon which can work both ways. On, in 1928, it happened to do the right thing. But what if the Parliament suddenly decided to do the wrong thing? It still has the power to do it. Let us never forget. And so, well now there you've got the Roman Catholic conception and the Erastia. As over against these, surely we must agree if we go carefully through the scriptures about these things. Is this other idea which believes in what can be described as the two estates. It is God who owns everything. God is the Lord of the universe as well as the Lord of the church. God has ordained the state. The powers that be, says Paul, are ordained of God. The magistrates and various other types of rulers. Man hasn't made them. It's God who's ordained them. Yes, but there is this other estate, the church. And these two things exist side by side. The one doesn't control the other. They're both separate. And they're both under God. I suggest to you that that is the picture that you find in the New Testament. There is no indication at all here in the New Testament of anything coming anywhere near a state church. No, no. These people were independent of government. They met under the Lordship and in the presence of Christ. And outside was the great state to which they belonged. They were still citizens of that state. But here they entered into a realm which had nothing in a sense to do with the state at all. And that has been the reformed view of the relationship between the state and the church throughout the centuries. In exactly the same way one must point out that really you cannot find such a thing as a national church in the scriptures. Surely it's the opposite. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, barbarian nor Scythian, bond nor free. Nations have nothing to do with this. This is something different consisting of these people who have been born again and have spiritual life and who are, as I say, members of this mystical body of Christ and who gather together in their local assembly church, call it what you will, with Christ as the head. Differences in nations and nationality and racial distinctions are immaterial and should never be mentioned in connection with the church at all. The church is in that sense one and her people are the same everywhere. And to add these qualifications is surely to be guilty of something that is not scriptural. We know historically how these things have come to pass in various countries. There have been various historical accidents that have led to certain consequences. But if we are concerned about the scriptural view, well then I say that I, at any rate, for one, cannot find anything corresponding to such a condition anywhere referred to in the pages of the scripture. It's no argument to say that the nation of Israel was the church in the Old Testament. That was so. That was so at that time. But now, 
The kingdom, as Christ said to them, has been taken from you and shall be given to a nation bearing forth the fruits thereof. What's that? That's the church. As Peter proves in his first epistle and in the second chapter, where he applies to the church the words that were spoken to the nation of Israel. The church is now supranational. She has her people in all nations. She's above the nations. She consists of God's people living on earth in states but there they are citizens of that kingdom which is not of this world very well I'd hope to finish this doctrine of the church this evening I see that I haven't and God willing we will try to deal with the remainder next Friday evening let us pray O Lord our God we would again thank thee for all the perfection of thy ways with respect to us Forgive us, O God, that we are guilty often of choosing only certain parts and aspects of the teaching of thy word and ignoring others. O forgive us for our indolence, our laziness, and indeed forgive us, O God, oftentimes that we are gripped by the spirit of fear and are fearful of consequences and avoid difficulties. O God, grant us honesty, give us a hunger and a thirst for truth, and give us a holy boldness. And above all, we pray thee, give us that humility, whereby we shall humble ourselves and submit ourselves to be led of thy Spirit. Hear us then, O God, and enlarge our understanding, and grant that in all things we may live to the glory of thy name and manifest thy glory in the church and through the church, that those who are without seeing us may be attracted unto thee. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide with us now this night and evermore. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.